Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. The song that you just sang is drawn from a text uh, written by King David in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Father, I pray that you would instruct us today by your word, that you would penetrate your desires and and, and your truths into our heart, into our mind, into our very soul. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Next week, um, I will be doing a series entitled uh, Jesus Traits. And um, I plan to do that today, uh, but recent events have changed that. I need to ask you today to please, whether you're online or with us here, to listen to this entire message. It's one of those type of messages that you need to hear the entire thing, or you will not really understand and and be fair in the process. It is also um, a theme and a conversation today that you have been deeply indoctrinated in and um, propagandized for quite some period of time that just the mere statement of the conversation uh, can trigger you to shut down or, or walk away from it. And I implore you today not to do that. Too often we're in a society today that is so deeply polarized that all we do is reinforce our prejudices. We're not really trying to learn or understand anything new, let alone grasp the things of God. And so we listen to the echo chamber of our own social media or to uh, a specific type of general media that only feeds to our position. And so today, I guess, I just ask that you'd open your heart and mind to things. It's 1969. uh, There was a 21-year-old woman. She was born in Louisiana, but uh, she was living in Texas. And she had a really hard life, a lot of difficulties. Uh, There was drug use, there was um, promiscuity, there was um, rushes with the law, a number of things. She'd had two children already, um, both of whom she gave up for adoption. When she found she was pregnant with the third child, she did not want to have that child. And she wanted to have an abortion, but the laws in that time period, 1969 in our country, did not provide that with rare exception So at one point in time, she said that she was gang raped um, by a a group of of men. 
two female attorneys who wanted to challenge the abortion laws at that time um, picked up her case, and she became uh, Norma McCorby, became Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. Uh, Wade was Henry Wade, who was the district attorney. And so they carried this case forward, starting in 1969, for three years until it was finally resolved. At no time was uh, Norma McCorby ever in court. She never gave uh, um, any testimony. Just her cause was picked up. Um, She ended up, because of the length of time, obviously, uh, she actually gave birth to that third child, who was also put up for adoption. Um, Years later, she came forward and confessed that she was Roe of Roe v. Wade. She also confessed, even years later, uh, that she had lied and that the thing had actually been a consensual act of sex and not a rape. It wasn't the only lie that resolved or revolved around uh, the issue of abortion. Um, one of the other lies that was offered up was that there had been maybe 10,000 deaths in one year's time from illegal abortions or, or of type, one type or another. Um, the CDC actually began collecting data on abortion mortality in 1972. The year before Roe was decided, in 1972, the number of deaths in the United States, according to the CDC, from legal abortions was 24. From illegal abortions, 39. My source is the Washington Post, not exactly a bastion of conservatism, May 29, 2019. Um, It resulted with that lie, and incidentally we know it was a lie because the person who produced those reports of 10,000 or so plus um, was Dr. Bernard Nathanson. Dr. Nathanson was a practicing abortionist and activist. He later admitted that he lied over these things. Um, He was one who was actually the head of, at that time, he was the co-founder in 69, of the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, NARAL, later renamed National Abortion Rights Action League, still uh, NARAL. He was, for a time, the director of the Center for Reproductive and Sexual Health. At that time, it was the largest freestanding abortion facility in the world. He worked with Betty Friedan and others for the legalization of abortion, and it was his efforts and his statistics that he admitted later were false that succeeded with Roe v. Wade. With the development of ultrasound in the 1970s, Dr. Nathanson had the chance to observe a real-time abortion. And this led him to reconsider his views on abortion. In 1974, Dr. Bernard Nathanson wrote, quote, I am deeply troubled by my own increasing certainty that I had in fact presided over 60,000 deaths. He's often quoted as saying that abortion is, quote, the most atrocious holocaust in the history of the United States. Remember, this is a person who was the co-founder, driving force of some of this and source of stats. He wrote the book, Aborting America, in which he discussed what he called, quote, the dishonest beginnings of the abortion movement, unquote. In 1984, he directed and narrated a film entitled The Silent Scream in cooperation with the National Right to Life Committee, which contained the ultrasound video of a midterm or a 12-week-old abortion. His second documentary, Eclipse of Reason, dealt with late-term abortions. He stated that the numbers he once cited for Neural concerning the number of deaths linked to illegal abortions were false figures. Referring to his previous work as an abortion provider and abortion rights activist, he wrote in his 1996 autobiography, Hand of God, quote, I am one of those who helped usher in this barbaric age. It wasn't the only lie that was told in regards to to Roe v. Wade. 
uh, or in regards to abortion as a whole. Uh, one of the statements is that it's going to cause the prosecution of women uh, all over the place. There are only two cases in which women have been charged in any state for having an abortion in this country. One is in Pennsylvania in 1911. The other was in Texas in 1922. Since then, in 1922, there have been zero documented cases in which a woman has been charged in an abortion case. Under Roe v. Wade, the United States was, in fact, an extreme outlier in abortion law and policy, um, with many states allowing abortions up until viability. Uh, America is one of only seven nations, one of only seven nations in the world that include China and North Korea that allowed abortion on demand after 20 weeks of pregnancy. In fact, 75% of nations limit abortions after 12 weeks. The most source, again, is the Washington Post um, for that, that quote. Another lie that's been sold to the women of this country is that motherhood has forced upon them a distressful life and future. Well, women are fully capable of being moms and living successful, happy lives. It's demeaning to suggest or to say otherwise. As we look into uh, some of the other things that are part of this, one of the justices who wrote the uh, decision on this, Henry, uh, Harry Blackman, argued this, quote, we need not resolve, when passing on Roe v. Wade, need not resolve the difficult question of where life begins. And that's kind of a remarkable mission, considering the fact that that's really the crux and core of what the whole conversation was about. Whether it's life or whether it's just a clump of cells. The argument for a long time was just that, that it's just a clump of cells. It's not really life, and therefore it can be eliminated without any ethical or moral qualms whatsoever. Ultrasound punctured that quite a bit. Um, almost everyone that you can talk to understands and recognizes that, that life begins. There's something that happens at the moment of fertilization, at that moment of conception, that all the DNA, everything that makes us who we are, all the unique aspects of a human being are present at that exact moment. The argument's changing, though, considering the boldness of what's been going on more and more, to um, admitting that it's a human being and admitting that we're killing them. There was an article in The Nation. Uh, the Nation is the oldest continuing published weekly magazine in the United States of America. It goes back into the 18, uh, early, late 1800s. This article by Sophie Lewis, June 22nd of this year. The title is, Abortion Involves Killing, dash, and that's okay, exclamation point. To be pro-choice is to be against forced life. And the author's argument is that it's a type of enslavement or forced labor to provide or have someone continue to term. And so as a result, we should acknowledge, yes, it's, it's murder, it's killing, but human beings, she argues, the author says, is we, we kill for a lot of different reasons. You know, someone attacks me, I kill. Uh, to get out of colonialism, I'll kill. For liberties reasons, I'll kill. But in each case, it's the taking of an innocent, not taking of an innocent life, it's taking of an offensive, aggressive life. In this case, we're talking innocent life. Uh, in the article, uh, Abortion Involves Killing and That's Okay, um, the author quotes from Maggie Nelson, who wrote in The Argonauts in 2015, uh, this, Feminists may never make a bumper sticker that says it's a choice and a child. But of course, that's what it is. And we know it. We're not idiots. 
we understand the stakes, sometimes we choose death. Sometimes we choose death. And so our society has become increasingly hardened that now we have a movement called Shouting Your Abortion to come out with pride and shout about the murdering of your offspring. Now we have NBC Today, this past Mother's Day, or Father's Day. NBC Today, in order to celebrate Father's Day, put out on social media asking dads to share how their abortion made them a better father. And a number of fathers responded to this about how aborting their unborn children made them better parents to the children they decided not to abort. Um, One man claims he wouldn't be a father without abortion. Uh, I'm I'm not going to read all of it. I had a conversation this past week with my my mom. We talk every once in a while. And... um, I mentioned in passing just that I'd be discussing these issues today. And my mother is um, a registered nurse with an advanced degree. Um, She finished her career uh, teaching clinical nursing at one of our local universities in the area here. She's currently 90 years old, though. And um, she's the the daughter of a pastor and was the wife of a pastor. And... uh, when I mentioned what I was talking about, my, my mom offered, she, she just, she says, well, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I said, no, mom. I said, you know, she's 90 years old. I said, you mean you're pro-life? No, I'm pro-choice. I said, no, mom, you, you're pro-life. You, you, mean, you mean pro-life? No, I mean pro-choice. I believe in a woman's right to choose. And um, then she moved on. She says, when I had my classes, I would tell my students I believe in a woman's right to choose whether to have sex or not. I believe in a woman's right to choose whether to have and use uh, contraception or not. I believe in a woman's right to choose to become pregnant. She says, but at that point in time, a new human being's in place, and there's no longer a right to terminate that, that life. So I want you to understand my mother's stance, if you were listening closely, because this is exactly how rumors get started, Okay. <laughs> And I will admit, I was actually quite taken back at first for the first few minutes of it myself. But that was her position as a medical professional and as a, as a woman and as a mother. And there's a point where we have choices in our life. And there's a point where those choices stop because of the choices we make. I can choose with my car to go and do practically anything I want to do, but there's certain things if I do with my car that suddenly my choices with that car stop and that car is taken away from me, possibly my freedom's taken away from me. We have choices, but there's a point in time where those choices stop. 38 states treat the killing of an unborn child as a form of homicide. They have what are called fetal homicide laws. It's illegal to take the life of the unborn if the mother wants the baby, but it is legal to take the life of the unborn if she doesn't. It's a decision of the mother's choice. John Piper says, we reject this right to define personhood in the case of Nazi anti-Semitism or Confederate race-based slavery and the Soviet gulags. When we define the humanness of the unborn by the will of the powerful, we know what we are doing in that moment of time. Nathanson earlier had um, referenced 
and was the creator, actually, of a theory entitled the Vector, the Vector Theory of Life, which states that the moment of conception, there exists a self-directed force of life, a self-directed force of life that, if not interrupted, will lead to the birth of a human baby. So he came up with that Vector Theory of Life. And so if we look at human development and we look at the moment of conception, all the DNA, everything that's unique, everything that makes a human being is present in that moment. From that point on, there's a series of developments from an embryo or from that moment to several other stages I'll jump to, jump past, to an embryo, to a fetus, to a baby, to um, an infant, to a toddler, to having childhood, to having adolescence. There's a continuum of development, but it begins at this moment. If we're saying anything beyond that can be interrupted, that vector of life, then where does that stop? Does it stop at 12 weeks? And this is the thing the court couldn't figure out. And this is why even the recent court decision finally threw it out, even though they're only asking for a 15-week element, because they came down to the statement of saying, where do you stop? Does it stop there? Does it stop when the baby's born? Does it stop at childhood? Does it stop at adolescence? I understand that the male brain is not fully developed until age 25. <laughs> Good argument could be made. And you can sit here and say you're being gratuitous here at this point in time and ridiculous. Am I? We recognize already that it's being recognized increasingly that it's life and that we have a right to execute it. Peter Singer has also argued even for infanticide, the death afterwards. In his book Practical Ethics, Singer wrote, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. And in his reasoning, therefore, he says they are not persons because they're not self-aware. But animals are self-aware, and therefore the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee. Well, Peter Singer is just some outside nutcase. What? Peter Singer is the professor of bioethics at Princeton University. And he and others have argued that the parents have the right even after birth. Once you move from this position, the slope is incredibly slippery. Does it stop at a certain point of development? Does it stop at just having a disability? Does it stop because the sex of the child as happens most oftentimes, which is why China and India and other countries right now are overbalanced with men and have fewer women because they abort the women first because of a value of those, of those countries? Does it stop at the color or skin tone of the individual? Once you move from this fixed point, the slope goes increasingly downhill. We have stood very clearly in these positions over the years. We support compassion pregnancy. We support uh, um, and encourage adoption and fostering of children. We're one of the few churches in the entire area that has something called Bridges, a ministry to parents that have children that have disabilities so that those children can be ministered to while the parents are able to be freed for a moment into a service and be encouraged. What about the disabilityed? What about those who, who by someone else's judgment are not going to live a full, complete life. Where does that stop? 
We're told that you, you, you should not bring an unwanted child because their future just is impossible. It's, it's going to be dark. It's going to be horrible. It'll be terrible in the process. And so by those guidelines, if I see a 10-year-old, a 5-year-old, whatever, uh, drowning in the river, I, I start to rescue that child. And then I realize, well, their clothing is bad and they're emaciated. They're probably not well cared for. Their parents are standing on the side. They don't seem to care. What future could that child have? I don't think I should engage. We don't think that way. There's nothing else in society where life is involved that we say we wouldn't be involved or would accept responsibility for the full future of that person or that thing. Instead, we reach out and we save. Ironically, uh, Norma McCorvey herself would have been a high candidate considering her life and how it lived out. She's a rather tragic figure because of how, how she was and her lifestyle and different things. The abortion side didn't want to own her in any way and discarded her afterwards. Later then, the right to lifers picked her up and they used them for, her own, for their own cynical reasons. Paid her to take a certain position. For decades, our politicians have been like dogs chasing a car, but now they've caught the car and they have to deal with the aftermath. What do you do? So for the first time, politicians on either side of the equation have to actually answer for the subject. They have to actually speak to the issue. But they're not the only ones. I said last week that this is an extremely personal issue. It is. Tomorrow morning, at some point in time, a petition will be offered up to the election Board of Elections um, to put on the ballot in November to eliminate the law that stands in Michigan uh, for abortion and to put a new law in place that will allow absolutely unrestricted abortion on demand. And you'll pay for it with your tax dollars. This is what will be offered up in November. So now you and me. And Michigan's a test state for the entire country. We will have to decide. How do we stand on this issue? What are the facts of the issue? What's involved? There are choices that we now have to make, each and every one of us. Early on, um, the church stood against, early Christians, against abortion. They recognized early on that, that Jesus healed people, that, that he raised the dead, that he was all about life. At no time does Jesus say, yeah, you know, it's kind of hopeless, so let's, you know, kill that guy. Jesus was all about life. So early on, from the earliest time, the church has stood against the issue of abortion. It went further still, even afterwards, when children were abandoned on hillsides after it was determined what the sex was, often, and they were abandoned on hillsides. It was the Christians that went to those hillsides and oftentimes even against the law took those children in and the earliest of, 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 of uh, um, uh, orphanages were provided by the church. Now so far in this conversation you may be seduced into thinking that this is about politics. This is about some type of, of a, an agenda that's being carried out in that way. We are not political in nature. There are those of us in this room that have struggled with abortion. There are those of us in this room, whether male or female, contributing to it or acting out in the area of that. And so we're left with just wanting to know what is the truth? What, how will God judge us in regards to these things? And that we don't turn to donkeys and we don't turn to elephants we turn to the Lamb of God and to the Word of God. And so in Psalm 139, 
David is writing, and he says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Praise you about fearfully, wonderfully made, wonderful. He says, my frame was not hidden from you, even though it was hidden inside the belly of my mother. It wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret places of the womb. He uses the analogy of the depths of the earth, things that are unseen, to, to illustrate the same way, woven together. It says, your eyes saw my unformed body. And then this, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We sit here and say, what the possible future of this child that's unwanted or, or this moment and this, that. We're not God. And we cannot predict what those items are. But we do know that God ordains life. Or Isaiah 49, the prophet says, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he's spoken my name. He's not the only prophet. Jeremiah chapter one says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, God speaking to him says, before I formed you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born. So two things, before in the womb, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Luke chapter one, Elizabeth is greeted by Mary carrying Jesus and the baby leaps in the womb of Elizabeth because she's carrying the time and Elizabeth will fill the Holy Spirit for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, she said to Mary, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist is there and is recognizing in the womb Jesus and Mary. Side note, Luke, he was a doctor. He was a physician. This is not an issue of arguing uh, a cold debate or discussion. It's not about uh, manipulating things on one side or another. Norma McCorvey was a tragic figure that was used by both sides. She struggled with genuine fear and terror and was, was had a difficult, difficult life. There are those in our congregation here today mostly female, but probably some men still that were part of this, that, that have acted out on those things, or maybe even right now are struggling over the process. And every one of us in this room, as I said, will have to make some kind of an accounting by our votes, by our conversations, by what we believe and think. We can no longer stand on the sideline. The shield of, of the, the federal government has been removed. We now are engaged And if we look at the scriptures that we look at here and other places throughout the scripture, it's clear that abortion is a sin, that anything other than that point of conception is a slippery slope that can ultimately do damage deeply. But it's hardened our society already. We have choices. And hence the title of this message today, Choices. But we come to a place where those choices no longer exist and there's only one way forward. And we are responsible for the actions of that. Legislatures and courts can help set a tone in culture, but they will not change minds and hearts. At the end of the day, it is the only change that will address this is the change of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only in those ways that we can find hope where we have no hope. Forgiveness when we fail. Understanding when we're confused. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, 
God is speaking to the children of Israel before they enter this new land, a new land that has foreign and twisted beliefs. One of those, just one of those being Moloch, where where people would offer their children to this God as living sacrifices so that they could be fruitful, so they could be successful, so they could see their their fields flower. And that was just one of them. There were many other twisted, dark things in that land and foreign gods. And so God's instructing them before they walk in. He says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who's going to climb up there and and get it and proclaim it to us so we can obey. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, hey, let's get some sailors to go over there and proclaim it to us so we can obey it. No, the word's very near to you, God's saying. It's as close as your mouth. It's in your heart. It's as close as your heart so you can obey it. It's accessible. Hear it. It's simple as this. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Simple. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him. Why? Because my ways bring life. And the ways of the land you're going into bring death. Don't be separated from me. Keep commands, decrees, laws, then you'll live in increase. The Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering possess. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. Blessings and curses. You have the option. But God's not neutral saying, it doesn't matter to me, pick whatever you want. No, he's a loving God that knows the fallout of our choices. So he says, now choose life. I beg you, I implore you, I ask of you, choose life so that you and your children may live. You have a choice. Go by what's in the land you're going into and be torn apart by that and destroyed by that. Or follow me, stay close to me, walk in my ways. Choose life, I beg you. But we have a hardness of heart that is not only inside the, church, inside the country today, but inside the church as well. Jesus, in, in the book of Matthew, is asked about divorce, and it's clear when he's all said and done, he says, what causes divorce is a hardness of heart. That's what causes a breakdown of the relationship. And this is the case with us. There's a hardness of heart within our own society and within who we have become, and even within the church. And so you see churches that are actually, and pastors that are actually sitting here and saying, no, abortion is God's gift to you. Or those in the society and our world that will sit here and say, yes, we know it's murder. But it's our choice. We know it is. Then you have over here so much of, of another part of the church that, that's, that's so angered by all this and so caught up with all this. And I understand the anger. I understand the feelings of this, but, but the tones are harsh and, 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 and the action is, is, is repugnant. And then there's this small little group simply wants to obey the Lord. To know his truth and apply it as best we can with humility and with thoughtfulness. And it's that that causes me to say, yes, abortion is a deep, dark, horrible sin that has hardened the hearts of this country and destroys. But it also causes me with the same breath to say to those of you who have walked in this, 
to know that if you have confessed that sin or you do confess that sin, that there is grace for you. That you do not need to be defined by that action. That, that you are not defined by the killing of your child. You are defined by the sacrifice that God made of his son. That you're not defined by that moment, but by the grace that God provides for you. For those of you who have never delved into this, that have shied away because it's an ugly subject, or because you've been so indoctrinated to see this as a rights issue and choice and, and some of the patriarchy of the whatever, I beg of you, I implore you, look at this, explore it. Find the truth in this. I know there's those on the opposite side of this discussion to say, and I know that if you'll hear me at all, you've been so indoctrinated to see this is just this opinion. If it was just my opinion, then you could ignore it. But if the word is true, then you have an issue. If you've never even acted out on this issue, but have took a stand on this issue, then you have an issue. So this morning, as we draw this time, this portion to a close, because there's something else yet I need to share with you, and it's important that you hear this next part. Let us be clear about where God stands on this. Let be clear there's a point, and if we move off that, there's a slope that, that doesn't end. Let's be clear that God stands for this life, this innocent life, and that we are too as well. Let's also be aware that there is grace and forgiveness, whether it's for a position you've held or an action you've taken, if you accept and admit those things. And so I want to pray with you for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to sing a song with me for a moment and to process the words of that song. And then I have a final thing I need to share with you. So Father, right now, I'm praying right now, Father, for every individual who struggled through an abortion, whether they were on the, the male side that contributed to that or on the female side that acted that out, God. That as individuals lay this before you today, that you would grant your grace and your forgiveness and your freedom for them. I pray for those who've held opinions for so long that are purely American, but not biblical, that today they'd be challenged in their thinking and in their actions as well. And I pray in just these few moments of time that we'd come before your face, that your Holy Spirit would go beyond whatever words that I've shared here today. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with us, please? Two weeks ago, um, Bishop Harris spoke to us. He spoke out of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift which God's given you through the laying out of my hands. For God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. In this conversation, you need to understand that you have been given a power to speak into moments and places. That you have the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. I know that it can be intimidating having this conversation. But there is a power as a believer that you have. That power is not to be exercised with harshness or violence. Notice, it's to be tempered with love. You have a power. 
but it's be tempered with love and a sound mind. I know that may be a lot to ask, but that it, what it means is when everything else is going crazy, that we're calm, that we're not operating out of fear. God's not given us fear, but he's given us a power to stand, to express that in love and with a sound mind. Now, the close to the last thing I want to share with you is simply this, as a, as a, as a, as a balance to that. C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters. It was first published in 1942 during the Second World War. And one of the subjects that he does in this book is addresses the danger of using Christianity to support a cause. Now, he's writing this book, Screwtape Letter, from the devil's perspective, a, a, a demon advising a younger demon how to, to deal with his patient, which is us, against the enemy, which is God. So here's what the demon writes to his compatriot. I've not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. All extremes, except extreme devotion to God, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period in history. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent. Then it's our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it's our business to inflame them. Lewis went on to write, Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto that stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort, or of pacifism, or of abortion, or anti-abortion. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers, sacraments, and charity, he's ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here in hell. We believe in life, that it begins at the point of conception. We stand on that, and we have the power to address it but through a filter of love always and with a sound, clear, quiet mind. And we will not be caught up, though, in any cause beyond that because the thing that truly changes hearts and minds are not those conversations. It's the gospel of Christ. That is our cause. No other cause, no matter how righteous, ever supersedes that. We have individuals in this congregation even now listening to this that still struggle or maybe have a difficulty with this conversation today. We don't win that conversation by making this a center point. We do stand. But my main thing I want you to do is to have a relationship with Christ, to believe the Bible is true. All the rest falls out after that. Final thing today. You've been patient. Next week, It'll be safe to come back to church. <laughs> I promise you. Today wasn't very safe. But tomorrow, next week, we'll, we'll be dealing safely. But this passage of scripture I leave you with today. Matthew, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The same thing that God was trying to express in Deuteronomy to the people of Israel. With all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and the second's like it. 
But this is the first great commandment. I want you to read this with me. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I'm going to ask you to read it one more time, but you picked up my emphasis on this because it's a pretty, pretty clear statement that there's no division of loyalty here or other causes. So read this again and join me on it. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Don't ever forget it. Even in the midst of a conversation like this, don't ever forget it. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I pray that we'd be cognizant of the power that you give us, that it would always be filtered with love, that we would have a sound mind, that we'd be thinking people, that we would explore and, 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 and understand why. And God, I pray for all those who struggle over this issue, for women and men even as well, that struggle with the subject here today and the choices they should make or would make, that, Lord, you'd give them the strength and the courage to let them know that every day of their future, you already have planned out that there's nowhere they're going to go, that you're not there with them, that they can choose life. They can choose your ways. They can walk in grace and peace and forgiveness. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.